0: Where last week we talked briefly about the great prayer of Colossians 1 that Paul offers. And I'll summarize, I'll review it with you. This is our translation. He says, we do not cease to pray for you in Colossians 1 and verse 9. We do not cease to pray for you. Great example of prayer in the scriptures It's like our big brother, who's already figured things out, is showing us the ropes. He's teaching us how to do it. And it's kind of like tying your shoes or any other skill in life. It's vital. And unless someone shows you how, you really don't know how to do it. And maybe that's where you are in your prayer life. Maybe it's a a thing for you that you want to pray more, and you're really not sure how to. You don't really know what to say. And you hear that we should be praying. 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing or pray unceasingly. I have so many places in the Bible that say we should always be giving thanks for all things at all times. And Ephesians 5, 19, lots of places where prayer is emphasized, but how do I do it? Well, one of the great ways to learn this is go to the Bible and how do they pray? What are their methods? And Paul says, we don't cease to pray for you Colossians, you Colossian believers, and to ask. So they are faithful in the word. They're part of the ministry of the gospel. And so here's what Paul requests for them. I would request it for you. I would request that you would ask God for this for me. And this is the good stuff. And to ask that you be filled with the epignosis, the full knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding being filled with the full knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. This is the request. Now, I believe that we have in the scriptures plenty of information about how God does this. I don't think it is mere mysticism that you just kind of tarry and then God gives you uh, new information. I don't think that's what's happening at all. But there is a lot that God has locked away for us to uncover in his word. And in the time in which we live, this is going to be the avenue for you to have the heart and the attitude that God has for you to think what he thinks, to know what he wants you to know. Being filled with spiritual knowledge so that you're able to apply it spiritually is going to be an engagement with God's word, even as Paul is writing the scriptures here that you be filled with the full knowledge of his will so that that filling has a purpose and it is a so that you will walk. Now notice you have the intake of the word or the intake of the information and I contend through the word and then you have the application in the walk Now, it's all personal. It's all personal engagement with God. It's all spiritually empowered by God the Holy Spirit. But there's an information, an epignosis information content. And then there's an application, walking uh, portion to this. That you walk worthy of the Lord. And why? To please him in all respects. Now, don't be a, a sophomoric theologian emphasis on the moros part of that don't be a fool and say well we already are pleasing to God in all respects because we have Christ and so you just don't understand your position in Christ don't do that with the scriptures you believers in a personal relationship with God need to make your choices on the basis of what does please God versus what doesn't please God yes positionally in Christ you are it's propitious. God is satisfied with you or he's propitious with you. He's satisfied with you and you are acceptable to him and you are well-pleasing to him in Christ. That's your position. But Paul isn't talking about resting simply on position. He's talking about people in Christ who need to walk worthy. And the way you do that is you think about being pleasing to the one who loves you and saved you. It's the obvious no-brainer, creator-creature distinction. God is God. I am not. He's the one that's righteous and has the best ideas. I'm not, and I need to seek to be pleasing to Him. This might be a seriously missing component in your personal relationship with God, just the sense that you want to be pleasing to Him. And why might that be missing? Lots of possible reasons. One is that I uh, don't have any time to think about pleasing anyone else because I just want to please myself. Now, such a person didn't just hear that. And uh, their spouse did and is like, I hope he hears that. And he didn't or she didn't. You understand what we're saying? Like they don't even see that that's they're self-centered because they can't imagine anything being critical of them because they're so self-validated. And it's a huge problem. That might be one of the reasons that you never think of being pleasing to God is you're too busy trying to please the little g God of your life, which is you and your appetite. It's a serious problem, and you should evaluate, is this where I am? It's, a, it's death. It's living spiritual death. And don't, don't try to be one of those horrible theologians that says, well, such a person can't truly be saved. No, that person could have eternal life, be walking in darkness. Paul says the Corinthians are walking like mere men in 1 Corinthians 2 and 3. What's another reason that we don't think of being pleasing to him? The bad theology that says, well, I already am, so I don't have to think about it. No, you have your position, and you have your practice based on the grace you've received. Now, let's walk worthy in the personal relationship. Another is that people get a misunderstanding of God and they make God a system or a machine or a, or a process, And they don't understand we're dealing with a personal being who personally is invested and wants to see how you perform and wants to see you do well and is equipping you for that in the way that he's doing it. And I know it's hard. It's by faith, not by sight. It's through his word and those uh, who have given it to us. and, And it's invisible processes. And it's hard with that side of things. It's the challenge of our time that we walk by faith and not by sight. Nevertheless, it's faith in the personal being with whom we must deal. And so when we don't want to think of him as this personal being who has these desires and perspectives and preferences, that's where we kind of run uh, off, the, off the chart here where, where, we, where we get off the map. So we're not seeking to be pleasing to him for lots of reasons, but they pretty much all boil down to arrogance aided by ignorance or ignorance aided by arrogance. And we should repent, change our thinking, say no to that, and yes, to God and a personal relationship with him. Can I just summarize for you that the personal being who made you in his image for personal relationship with you wants you to personally engage him with the question, God, what pleases you? So this is what we're after. That we'd be filled with the spiritual knowledge and all of, of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you will walk worthy of the Lord to please him in all aspects. And now we're getting down to decision-making. How do I make the choice on this or that thing? Ask the question, what's the pleasing choice? What's the worthy choice? What's the worship choice here? So helpful to summarize things. I need to be able to think when I'm emotionally invested, when I'm emotionally hung up on something, and it's hard for me to think clearly. It's all a big fog, and I just, I'm uncomfortable. So helpful to just shine the light on the truth and think. What pleases him? What is he, what's he like? What does he want? And maybe you don't know him well enough yet to answer those questions. That's what you're going for. Spiritual knowledge, full knowledge of God and according to his will so that you have wisdom and spiritual insight, spiritual understanding with the result that you're bearing fruit because I am walking worthy to please him I'm bearing fruit in every good work and growing into the full knowledge of God. I'm growing into that knowledge, that epinosis of God that we've already heard about. So notice what's happening. So you're filled with the word so that you walk worthy of the Lord to please him so that you bear fruit. Bearing fruit. The result is you're bearing fruit in every good work and growing into the full knowledge of God. Now, some of you were uh, raised spiritually with the idea that uh, you can never quite be pleasing to God, but uh, if if you come to church and you take the sacraments, you can eventually become pleasing to God. That's how some of you were raised spiritually and even confirmed in that heresy. Others were raised with the idea that the goal is that I grow spiritually until I become spiritually mature, And in gaining spiritual maturity, I can be pleasing to God and glorify Him through being mature so that I can receive my rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. Some of you were kind of raised on that idea that the whole point is spiritual growth for spiritual maturity, for spiritual rewards. And what's missing In the first one is the grace of God that you've already received and the power of the Holy Spirit in you, who is equipping you to be pleasing to him as you walk with him. What's missing in the second one is that there is actual work to do, that it isn't just that we come to know him, it's that we come to know him and serve him so that we're bearing fruit in every good work and growing into this full knowledge of God. By means of being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. What this portion tells us with the verbal structure is that the way this all takes place is God does it in you. It's his power. It's his way. So if it's his power, why can't I go back to passive? I'll just go back to just, you know, Lord, if he's going to do it, he's going to do it. Well, the thing is... He's a personal being, he made you a personal being, and he wants personal engagement, and you have to choose. You have to make your choices to avail yourself of the word, for example. In having taken in the word to avail yourself in time of prayer, to think through how you would live it. In in a personal engagement to be pleasing with God, you would then make choices that carry out the word. All right, we've heard so much about the Lord's commissioning of his disciples to set them up for what would happen when they received the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, Luke 24, Acts 1, Mark 16, John 21. I can show you how it connects, how John 21, when when Jesus talks to Peter, connects to this. The commissioning of the disciples, the last words of Jesus, and all the gospel presentations, all four gospels and Acts, setting the disciples up for when they receive the spirit going to do the work that is building the church to make disciples of the nations you've heard and you've heard and you've heard and we've done some do you understand that you have the holy spirit because you have a mission that's the way the doctrine works you have the giving of the spirit in luke 24 and acts chapter 1 because you have to bear witness you've got a job to do you don't have the holy spirit because oh that's nice oh, we've got the Holy Spirit. No, he's got a mission for you to conduct. And the more attention you pay to the word of God, the more this will be real to you. And I'm not meaning to make you feel guilty if you're not part of this work. I'm just saying that's what we're here for. And you should feel like you're wasting your life. That's not guilt. That's something uh, a little more powerful, I think, than artificial guilt. Don't waste your life on you when you've got a mission that God has invited you into His works. Hopefully, you understand all these passages and these doctrines about the mission, about the work that God's given us to do. All right, so how do we bring that into our experience? I've got the doctrine. Now, what do I do? We ask God in prayer, we get about His work toward others in that mission. He says, make disciples of the nations. Okay, that's evangelism, baptizing and evangelism. That's teaching them to keep all that Jesus commanded. That's, that's the, the, the instruction phase of the, of the work of the body of Christ. I need to be in prayer for those things and be engaged uh, when, when people are in my life that need to come to Christ or having believed they need to grow in the word. And I can engage in prayer and that's how I'll do it. That's the good work that he calls us to do. What about other opportunities that you might have to personally engage in these works? You've got the doctrine of the mission. You've got biblical doctrine spiritual gifts feeds right into the mission. How do you fit into building up the body of Christ? You know what the church is, the body of Christ. It's all believers in this age. You know so much of the doctrine, but what do you do with it? Here's an example. This time in which we live, God has seen fit to allow our church and some other churches like us to relaunch the ministry of Child Evangelism Fellowship in New England, in this portion of New England, in Connecticut and Rhode Island. He has allowed us to be uh, in the center of this process. We're not all of the effort at all, but we're part of the reignition of this work that kind of had fizzled out in Connecticut and Rhode Island. Massachusetts, the state of Massachusetts, still does not have any uh, in-school good news clubs. None. And they haven't for years. But we hadn't for years either in Connecticut or Rhode Island. Now we have several functioning clubs. And what is a club? It is us going into the local public schools to tell little children that would not ever hear otherwise that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, died for their sins and rose from the dead to give them eternal life. And what they must do with him is trust in him as their savior. We are saying this, in the public school system, we're saying it in in these parentally, um, you know, signed-off parental consent after-school clubs within the the buildings that we're paying our taxes, our exorbitant taxes to to facilitate these buildings, and we're and we have legal precedent and we have all the structures in place to do this. It sounds like a miracle. I have a friend that's a school board uh, superintendent. Um, a, a school superintendent a school, a school superintendent down in Texas. When I broached the topic of good news clubs with him and what it was, he'd never heard of it. He said, his first thought was, I, I don't know that I would be good with that. He's a Christian man, Baptist. I, I don't know that I would, I mean, and you know, out of his mouth, you know, the next thing he said was, that, isn't that kind of like a problem with the separation of church and state? Like he's, Completely absorbed in the worldview that has completely killed this culture. <laughs> By the way, if you're wondering about that, you visiting, they haven't heard me talk about this. The separation of church and state is a neat idea in terms of authority structures and stuff, but it has a problem because the state is composed of people and the church is composed of people. You are the church. I'm not the church. The bylaws of Preston City Bible Church aren't the church. You are the church. And the goal of the separation of church and state as it's being plied today is to exc- excise your influence as the church from the body politic, from the public sphere. That's what it now means, separation of church and state. What, they, what Jefferson talked about and what the founders envisioned in terms of separation in the First Amendment has nothing to do with what's going on in the secularization and indoctrination of our children in a worldview and a religious movement. The, the humanists will tell you that it's a religion. There is no neutral space. You're either teaching them to serve Christ or not. And that's where we are. That's where our culture is what's happened because we believe in this, this lie of the neutral space. And I'm not mad about it. I'm not bitter. It might sound a little bitter about it. It's, I just love my country. And I'm, I'm scandalized by the fact that it's been so poisoned. But here we are in the schools. And even the, the fellow down in Texas, he's like, I'm, I'm, I don't know about that. I'm like, but you know, you know we've got a commission. Well, that's for the church. All right, I'm telling you this as an application because you've got the mission, You've got the gospel, and those that don't receive Christ are headed to an eternal separation from God described as the lake of fire prepared for Satan and his fallen angels. That is the destiny of all those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. It isn't the focal doctrine of the scriptures. It isn't really taught in a whole lot of different places, but it is the eternal destiny of all those who are in Adam and not in Christ. It doesn't matter how much money you give, what kind of a good person you were, what kind of charities you ran, what kind of orphanages you started. All the good works amount to filthy rags in God's sight because that's what our righteous deeds are. The issue is the gospel of Christ and the righteousness of God. And we have this message. And here in blighted, darkened, benighted New England, we are saying this to children in schools. There are two school districts that I know of with multiple elementary schools within not much driving distance from us. One of them is Norwich. That is saying we are ready for four more good news clubs. Does anybody have any teams? Are there any churches to take these on? We have a plentiful harvest, and the workers are few. And I've been, I haven't been—I have been in a while, before COVID and a few years before that, I was more heavily involved with the club that Matt and Jamie run in Norwich at the Veterans Memorial School. That's how we met the Pierre Pauls, brought them into our church and our church family. Being involved with that, I witnessed, I witnessed children en masse professing faith in Jesus Christ, having understood a clear gospel presentation. Dozens every year, dozens of elementary school children, many of whom, many of whose parents put them in the club because it was another after school daycare thing that they could have, you know, give the state more of their kids more time with, like, because it's, it's after-school care. Hey, give them to me. We'll do it. We have more opportunity to share Christ in this structure than we've ever had. Now, here's an interesting thing. There's a school district or a school, uh, a public school district in Rhode Island that was wide open for the last year, and now we see that door, it seems to be kind of closing. And there, I think there, there's more schools there No clubs. We can't get the the churches together to own these clubs. It's a crazy thought. We should pray about it. But see, this would be a clear application of what we're reading here. What is our mission? What are we here for? What does the scriptures tell us? What do the scriptures tell us about our assets, about our responsibilities, about the whole thing in this mission? And how would we put it into practice? How would we bear fruit in every good work, growing into the full knowledge of God? Well, we'd have to have God strengthen us for the task. Honestly, I do VBS with y'all. I do the pastor moment with the kids. The idea of every week getting up in front of a bunch of uh, of tired, but, but yet rambunctious elementary school kids to tell them of Jesus. I have to say it seems like a very attractive thing the way my personality is wired, but it also seems like something that would take a huge amount of energy. I would need... I would need a a fresh cup of coffee or something to do something like that. (sighs) Anybody got any energy? Right, and the last week of July or June, they're putting on the Mass, Rhode Island and Connecticut CYIA Children Youth and Christian Youth in Action, fourteen and over, where we are training teenagers to go in and be helpers and help run these clubs. There's your energy. It's a a great opportunity. I'm not just pitching this. I just want you to be aware right in our lives, right in our backyard, right on our hearts is this kind of thing where do I have the wisdom to know what God wants because he's told us to, to seize on the opportunity at hand and it's a big thing. The problem is that Tuesday or whenever the club is happens every week, no matter what. I've tried to not have it happen that way, but Tuesday just keeps on coming. <laughs> you can't get away from it. Tuesday at what, what time? You know, three, four, three, four o'clock, three 40, something like that. Four to, five. Four, four to five. Okay. No matter what, it's there just, it's, it's relentless. And it's not like the four to five for the leaders that are setting up and, you know, kind of taking this in hand. It's not like just four to five. There's a whole lot of preparation, hours of getting things arranged and setting it up to do it. It's a lot of work. But look at the result. I mean, this is fishing. This is the kind of fishing that you will catch fish if you, if you do it. I was talking to somebody the other day that we were talking about fishing, and they said, yeah, I, I don't like to go fishing. And I said, I bet when you first went as a kid, you didn't catch any fish. He's like, yeah, it was just hours of sitting there, no fish. Well, no wonder you don't like fishing. Have you ever had that day where they're biting? You're like, that's what it's about. It's worth it if, it's, if you catch anything. I sat in trees with my dad in horrible, frozen, 40 degrees, down to 30s. It was in the 30s sometimes. Sitting in trees in East Texas expecting Bambi to come by my dad was a deer hunting fanatic. He was like, he was about deer like people get about golf. Whole year. I remember, my dad was so into deer hunting that in my seventh grade um, research paper I had to write, it it was like a research, you know, baby thesis for seventh grade. I wrote on Different techniques of rattling whitetails to get their attention with, with antlers. <laughs> we were deer hunting people. I sat with my dad, I don't know how many hours, sitting still and silent. That's the worst thing for me, still and silent. <laughs> in trees of Avenger, Texas, and other little towns in East Texas where you get, you get a deer lease. The problem is, where we're from in East Texas, I don't know if it's a law, there aren't any deer. They just the deer down south in Central Texas. There's you know, dozens and dozens of you know per square mile, but where we're from, there just weren't any. But my dad was such a fanatic that we lived in in Longview, Texas. We're going to go find a place. We would go sit in trees and not see a thing. And I have to tell you that the first time I ever saw a buck in the wild where I could do anything about it, I was I was thirty five, thirty six years old. So. I love the idea, I love venison. I love that you're close to what you eat, what you kill, and I think that's really important. The cellophane, the meat comes in cellophane thing, there's something wrong with us that we don't understand, you know, about, about food. Like God gave these animals and they give their lives so we could live, but I mean, I could talk to you all day about the thought process, but boy, if you don't, if you don't catch them, if you don't catch fish when you fish, it's no fun. You go to the fair, and nobody comes to your booth. You can't tell anybody about, about Christ, anyone about Christ. Well, that's horrible. We went to the Grizzle Get-Together this last fall. We need to do three or four fairs this, this fair season, summer, fall. We've got to do this. We shared Jesus Christ in a clear gospel presentation with at least 30 adults and at least 25 children. And those 25 children all made the little wordless book bracelet and heard the gospel of Jesus in a systematic, grace-oriented presentation because we did this thing because we we put up the tent, we made popcorn, we had our little things ready and it worked. God brought people. Well, that's some fishing. That that was a great day fishing. Every Tuesday at the Good News Club is like that. I mean, it's not it's not all moonlight and roses at these things. There's always the three or four kids that everybody knows their name after one session. <laughs> it's a lot of work. Never know one of those little little Rugrats becomes a pastor because of your influence on him. By means of being strengthened with all power according to his might, you're gonna need God to show up to do the work that he calls you to do. Unto all endurance and long suffering with joy. That's what you're supposed to be experiencing in this Christian life that is full of his work. While you're giving thanks to the father who's qualified us for the portion of the inheritance of the saints and the light. All right. I tell you that to tell you this, you have been qualified for the portion of the inheritance of the saints. Great question I recently received. What are saints? Saints in my church that I grew up in are people that you, you can have a St. Christopher medallion. You can have these various Christians that died uh, after living saintly lives. And now they're some sort of intercessors. You pray to them and then they can, you know, pray to God or whatever you, you, uh, Basically, it's almost like if you get into the, the, the pantheon of saints, it's almost like a reignition of like the old pagan pantheons because you have a different saint for all the different things. And so like a different God for all the different things in the Roman and Greek and the prior systems. And um, I don't mean to say that in a... I don't mean to, to cast shade on anybody's childhood or anything. I'm just saying that that's not what a saint is in the Bible. The saint... The Hagioi, the saint, the Hagias, is someone that's set apart to God. The wicked Corinthian Christians are saints. Every believer in Christ is set apart to God positionally. That's what saint means. Try your name, Saint Peter. <laughs> well, that would works, Saint Peter. <laughs> saint Peter and Saint Lisa over there. So when you say it that way, you're not supposed to imagine yourself with a halo, but you are clothed in the garments of righteousness because of what Jesus did. So you should see yourself as set apart to God for his service, and you have been qualified for a portion of the inheritance. And now, in Colossians 1.13, the Father has qualified us who rescued us from the authority of darkness. The power of darkness in your Bible in Colossians 1.13 is exousia, exousia. Most often we will translate this word authority. So I hope you can understand how authority and power are synonyms. I like the word authority for this one because the word power seems to mean capability, but the word authority means the right to make decisions. And because the verse is talking about a certain dominion, a kingdom, if you will. The authority of darkness. And he has transferred us, metatitheme, he has transferred us into the kingdom of his, actually, it literally says, of the Son of the love of him, of his beloved Son. In this one verse, you have what we talk about all the time that we are at war. And there is a conflict that rages that is a spiritual and an invisible conflict. And you don't get to choose neutrality. There is no neutral place in either being under the power or authority of darkness or the kingdom of the beloved son. It's one or the other. There are two kinds of human beings. And Paul is writing to the Christians in Colossae, those who have been transferred into the Basilea, the kingdom of his beloved son. Who is the who? God the Father, the one who has a son. He has rescued you. He has saved you. What this means, in part, we read in Romans 6, is that you don't have to live according to the dictates of your sinful nature. It also means that you're not supposed to be characterized by the mores and the attitudes, the spirit of this world. The worldview of those around you isn't supposed to be your worldview because they're under the domain of darkness and you're not. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2, the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience, this worldview, this spirit is not binding on you. You've been freed. Not only do you have to, or not only are you not beholden to your sinful tendencies of disobedience of God, and that means sexually you don't have to commit sexual sins, even if you feel like it, you don't have to. God said not to. But I feel like it. Yeah, right. We all have sinful tendencies that we feel like. You don't have to. But but that defines what I am. It doesn't. We're sinners saved by grace. If you have Christ, don't let the world with its lies about your tendencies reenslave you to those tendencies. You can just serve God and freedom and you don't have to let the world speak to it. But the only way is if you're in the word as we've read in verse nine. He's transferred us. This is your status. Now this verse will be taken to mean that we're in the kingdom and Jesus is on the throne of David in heaven at the right hand of the father and I disagree with that with all my heart. We are looking for a coming kingdom, but we already belong to it. Already not, li- not yet language is often used to describe our circumstance, but those who generally use it, like George Alden Ladd, will say that we are already in the kingdom and that it's already being expressed, and, but it's not yet fully here. And the problem with that is that the king is not present and he is not seated on his throne. He's not taken by conquest what he will take, this planet earth, and we still have this problem of the domain of darkness. Let's don't get ahead of ourselves into what we call an overrealized eschatology and say, oh, this is great. We're in the kingdom. No, we're looking for the promised, prophesied coming kingdom. And Abraham and all those like him are going to be resurrected to enjoy it. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the coming kingdom. But you belong to it now. You're agents of it, while it is in abeyance and you're looking for it and recruiting those who will join us in it. In Colossians 1.14, in him, in Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This forgiveness of sins means that you and Christ have a new political identity. The topic is citizenship. Whereas before you were a citizen of a dark state, enemy of God, at enmity with God. And the truth is that now you have been transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son. So that is your new political identity, if you will. Pardon the expression, political. We have a secondary citizenship as human beings in the world living under the nations. But remember what Satan said to Jesus in Luke chapter 4, all these kingdoms of the earth have been given to me and I can do whatever I want with them. Jesus didn't rebuke Satan for saying that. He rebuked Satan for offering the kingdoms through through Jesus worshiping him. You should worship God alone. See, Satan isn't wrong when he says these kingdoms are in my grasp. Yes, we have a secondary citizenship, but it's only secondary. And we really need to focus on that primary citizenship. You've been transferred out of the authority of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now, what does that do for you? doesn't take you out of political processes in, the, in, in your culture. No. But it prioritizes for you. Yes, I need to be part of this political process. Yes, I'm going to vote. I'm going to advocate for something I think is right, for whatever candidate I think in whatever political way. That's fine. Absolutely. But that's not the mission. It's easy to lose track of this. in your participation i participated in our government in a way some of you have i got to be a a federal employee in the largest bureaucracy in the world no offense navy that's the united states army (laughs) i don't know if that's true that's what they told us they told us a lot of things it's a pretty big bureaucracy i served at fort hood texas and the largest military installation in the free world outside of Killeen, Texas. What's all that wide open space in Texas for? Tanks. Tanks driving over blue bonnets. I don't know if it gets any better than that, you know. (laughs) I participated in that, and I'm glad I did, and it's a vital thing. I mean, we're having to shoot down balloons with jet fighters. There's all kinds of exciting things right now. But I just want you to understand, within that, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune in this life, to borrow Shakespeare, within that, there is the mission. There's that loader sitting next to me, and I'm telling him about Jesus. He's like, yeah, I believe, and so now I'm telling him what the word of God says because we're making disciples by teaching them to keep all that Jesus commanded. And sometimes I was successful in this, and and way too many times that I'm so embarrassed about I wasn't. I didn't understand the mission like I do now. See, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, if you belong to a new institution with new responsibilities, a new mission, then you have to assume that. And we should get serious about it. Our Father, we thank you for eternal life. That We've been able to celebrate your son's death, proclaiming his death until he comes. And we know that we're doing it on enemy soil for the kingdom is in abeyance. We belong to it, but it's not here. We're anticipating it. We thank you for the challenges of ministry that you provided to us, just the thought of going into these schools to proclaim Christ to these children whose parents have said we're allowed to. It is such a daunting thought for so many, but it's such a rewarding thing, such an enjoyable thing. God, God, give us, uh, free us up from the encumbrances, Free us up from the distractions, from things that hold us back, from seizing on the opportunities you provided us. And I pray that you would, as we focused on your son today, you would reinforce in us that vision, that constant occupation with him, the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. And it's in his name we ask it. Amen.